Charles Wakefield Jr. sat in a small room. The fight for me is the fight to do the things that I need to do to become a better person, to try to get the skills I need to fight my wrong conviction. 25 years earlier, Judge Frank Epps sent him to death row. Wakefield had managed to escape death, but not prison. That's where he sat, with a camera rolling right next to him, as he reflected on his childhood. My aunt Inez, she had four children. You know, I had a reputation of messing with people's stuff, taking my petty stuff, stuff like that. In front of him sat his attorney, Eric Gottlieb, a young documentary filmmaker whose focus had changed from making a movie to making Charles Wakefield a free man. Gottlieb shot this video of Wakefield talking about a woman named Inez, one of Wakefield's beloved aunts, and an unusually bad day at her house. And one of her kids took some money, and she blamed me, but I knew I didn't do it. As an adult who spent the majority of his life in prison for a crime he says he didn't commit, Wakefield became acutely familiar with the pain of misdirected accusations. But back then, as a child, it was an alien feeling in his gut that manifested as indignation and anger. And it made me mad. I was angry with her for a long time. You know, she accused me of taking something from her that I didn't take. There's a song called Grindstone by the band Uncle Tupelo. It came out while Wakefield was in prison. There's a line in that song. It says, handcuffs hurt worse when you've done nothing wrong. Wakefield never heard that song, but he's worn the handcuffs, the ones that hurt more than others. If I had a took it, I wouldn't open my mouth, you know. But I was, I was mad after that. I didn't like nobody. I did not like nobody saying I did something that I didn't do. From the time he was a child until today, Wakefield hasn't managed to forget that sting around his wrists and his heart. Instead of trying to forget it, he used it to fuel the part of him that fights to convince people He's not a murderer. And the biggest fight for me and the hardest time that I have dealing with a lot of this is being in prison for killing two people. And I never killed anyone in my life. Wakefield has said those words since early 1975 when police put the handcuffs around his wrists, that he never killed anyone, that he's innocent of armed robbery and murder. He would like to say, He's 100% innocent of every accusation police made against him. He would like to say that, but he can't. Because one day, the police slapped some handcuffs on him. Handcuffs he deserved, and in a way, is still wearing today. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. When I interviewed Billy Wilkins, the 1975 Greenville County, South Carolina prosecutor, I wondered aloud at one point whether there was a chance, any chance at all, Wilkins had ever thought he might have been wrong when he sent Wakefield to death row for the murders of Lieutenant Frank Looper and Looper's father, Rufus. I guess I was just, you know, curious if you, over time, if your opinion had changed or if it had remained steadfast, and it seems that you still believe fully that Wakefield did it. I do, and I don't know of any evidence that's ever been produced, and maybe you can 
helped lead me to something that would say otherwise. Wilkins was like the two detectives who put together the double murder case. He never backed off the position he took in 1975 that Wakefield is a killer. I think what happened is that uh, Wakefield went in and he shot Mr. Loop and robbed him. And he saw Frank walking across the backyard, coming toward the garage, stood just inside the door and ambushed him as he walked in with a sh shot close to the head. When asked over the years, the prosecutor and police would tell a story about a version of Charles Wakefield, a Charles Wakefield who murdered two men for less than $200 and never showed an ounce of remorse. When the parole board tried to let Wakefield go in 2001, retired police chief Mike Bridges protested loudly. This right here is a miscarriage of justice, and it's just beyond me, beyond me, how a man that kills two people in an armed robbery, one a law enforcement officer and his father and ruins all those lives, and they let him walk out. To the cops, the jury, and everyone who believed in Wakefield's guilt, that version of Wakefield wasn't just a Charles Wakefield. That version was the Charles Wakefield. I don't think any of us ever really bought the official line of the police. There's another group of people who will tell you a different story of a different Charles Wakefield. What's really a shame is that man Wakefield, I don't think he did that. People like Frank Looper's cousin, Rufus Looper's nephew, Scott McCauley. I think he was a convenient patsy. You know, it ruined his life. It didn't just ruin a lot of lives in our family. It, it ruined a whole other family's lives. He isn't the only looper who feels that way. Scott's sister Adele and mother Julia are steadfast in their belief that Charles Wakefield is innocent. Do you think that Charles actually killed your brother and nephew? No, I don't think so. Adele, do you think that your uncle and cousin were killed by Charles Wakefield? No. And there are people like Frank Epps Jr., the son of the judge who sent Wakefield away, Frank Epps Jr. marveled at Wakefield's 35 years in prison, how Wakefield maintained his innocence the whole time without ever getting written up for discipline problems. Being so good, he won Inmate of the Year. I was really happy to know that Charles had had such a good record in prison, which you just never see, and meeting him and his attitude always impressed me, and I, I just can't tell you. It made me cry when he got out. I don't mind saying that. That is another version of Charles Wakefield the version his advocates believe is the Charles Wakefield. And then there is Charles Wakefield himself, the version he knows, a man who survived a death sentence but is still fighting to prove his innocence, just as he was during the prison interview he gave to attorney Eric Gottlieb. They sat down and they planned it. This is what we're going to do, and we're going to try to convict him. They knew if they convicted me, the only thing I could have got was a death sentence. They knew it. Those are three Charles Wakefields. Wakefields that overlap in places. Wakefields that are hard to define, like watching an old TV caught between channels. You don't know if you're looking at a Charles Wakefield or the Charles Wakefield. How do you figure that out? How do you decide? The jury that convicted Wakefield had a few days to listen to a couple versions of the Wakefield story. And the jury made its life and death decision in a few hours, in time to make it home for dinner on a Friday. But today, how do you decide which Wakefield is the Wakefield? It starts 
with continuing to ask questions and listening to the answers. And it starts by knowing the parts of Wakefield's story you haven't yet heard. I've already told you about the accusation and conviction that put him away. Armed robbery, double murder. In this episode, I'm going to lay out the rest of what I know about Wakefield's past. The accusations made against him, both before and during the Looper investigation. So you and I can both get as close to the Charles Wakefield Jr. as we can. The easiest place to start on the side of West Greenwood School, they had a big field. Is back when he was a kid. And we would play down there sometimes. We had a big thing in our community about shooting marbles, and we would play all these different marble games and skate and ride scooters. Everybody get behind another person, hold them by the waist, and the front person is holding a bike, and we, you know, let the person that's riding the bike pull us down the street. Actually, doesn't sound, sound that bad. Sounds like you actually had some fun. Yeah, we did. We did have fun. It was good, cheap fun. People were trying to survive. You know, it wasn't like they were spending a lot of money on kids to buy all these different things they get now. And I remember going to the to the different stores and stuff. Two two chocolate chip cookies for a penny. You can get a five cent candy bar that was basically about ten inches long. You know, <laughs> uh, baby roof. Baby roof was a whole lot of candy bar. It was innocent fun in the street, that occasionally would be not so innocent. Prior to the mugshot they took of Wakefield the night of his arrest on January 31st, 1975, the only mugshot I've found of him was a juvenile arrest from June of 1970, when Wakefield was 16 years old. A time, Wakefield says, a friend had borrowed a car and they went for a joyride. The police apparently didn't see the joy in it. I had a little guy that lived not too far from the house and he had borrowed somebody's car we went for a ride and i think they took us down there i don't think anything happened with that if that case ever went to court i never found a record of it and there wasn't one in the police file so one night i asked wakefield directly i mean a lot of kids on the street were getting in a lot of trouble were you getting any trouble no 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 never any serious trouble when i was coming up i actually was going to church i was one of them kind of people when somebody needed help and I knew they needed help, I would help them. Sure enough, based on what I found, after that juvenile arrest, Wakefield's rap sheet was clean until 1975, although Wakefield admits his time between the joyride and his 1975 arrest wasn't particularly fruitful or innocent. Hanging out, drinking a little beer, smoking reefer, you know, not really doing anything that amount to anything. Wakefield wanted to be something, but what he was doing, what he was accomplishing, was basically nothing. The path he was on wasn't much different than the Greenville streets lined with liquor houses, like the one where Wakefield got in a fight that ended with a warrant out for his arrest. I asked him about that night more than once, trying to make sure I understood what he said happened. You regret a lot of mistakes, and I'm, I, I feel like, you know, the night that Furman Wakefield came at you, you know, wasn't your fault, but I don't really know the whole story. Can you tell me that story so I understand it? My cousin Dexter and I, we went to the liquor house, get a couple of beers, listen to uh, some music, stand around on the porch, smoke John Rafer. Furman came up 
and he had an altercation with my cousin. He he didn't start out with me. He he started out with my cousin. It ended up uh, with me because my cousin was sort of taking a whooping, so I ended up in it. Do you remember what they were fighting about? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what they was fighting about. So after it happened, um, what ended up happening because of it? We got into it. We started fighting, and I think he took out took a warrant out. What became of that warrant? Police came to my house a couple of couple of times looking for me, trying to arrest me. But I was I was never never at my father's house. By now, you know, when police finally came to get him, it was the night of the Looper murders. The night a 21-year-old man with hardly a blemish on his record became a suspect in one of Greenville, South Carolina's most notorious crimes. You have come this far into a dark story about a southern city's past. But to go any farther, you need to keep listening as we keep working to tell you the truth we know. You deserve to know everything, to see every side of Charles Wakefield Jr. Not just the man who spent 35 years in prison while maintaining his innocence. And not just the troubled child with a mother who left him with an alcoholic father. But also, the man who committed a crime you've not yet heard about and went to prison for it. Wakefield committed that crime at the very same time he was under investigation for the Looper murders. Five months before a grand jury ever indicted him for murder, Charles Wakefield Jr. went behind bars on an 18-month sentence. He didn't come out for 35 years. I'll tell you about it right after this break. You might not know how much time and money go into producing murder, etc. Each episode like this one represents between 40 and 50 hours of work to produce. And that's not including the years of research and interviews. There's a group of listeners who are helping to cut some of my costs by joining the Amateurs Etc. investigation team. They're giving a monthly donation. And I'm really grateful to them for the effort and the money they're putting behind the show. Not to mention the friendships I'm discovering along the way. I've also heard from some of you who didn't want to get involved personally, but would still like to support the show with a one-time donation, either the cost of a cup of coffee or something to ensure I keep doing this for a while. If that's you, you can now send that donation through PayPal by going to paypal.me slash murderetc. That's paypal.me slash murderetc. Or if you prefer Venmo, you can send your donation to murderetc. And any amount will help. If you are one of those people that wants to help out, I've put all this information right on the front page of our website, murderetcpodcast.com. And thanks to everyone who's supported the show so far. One day in 1985, the entire world was looking at Greenville County, South Carolina. Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown remembers that day very well. 
That was the number one news story in the world for two minutes. And we got over 600 calls. I remember saying, well, I didn't know Charles Brunson was back escaping with the helicopter. That was the day a lovesick woman rented a helicopter and a pilot, held that pilot at gunpoint, and made him fly into the yard of South Carolina's Perry Correctional Institution. Three prisoners escaped on the helicopter and turned the entire world's attention to a real-life helicopter prison break. It was an interesting time. And you know what took us off front page? Ted Kennedy decided to call a press conference and say he wasn't going to run for president. So it took us off the front page of the news. But for two minutes, it was the number one story in the world. President Gate from Perry Correctional Institution in Greenville, South Carolina. That was 1985, when breaking out of prison was a lot harder than it was in the 1970s. Back then, South Carolina convicts broke out of prison so often, prison breaks were almost like an intramural sport. In fact, some of the people you've already come to know in murder, etc., escaped at least once, including Vardry Norris, Jackie Delk, and Country Small. You'll hear more about them someday. But right now, to have a full understanding of Charles Wakefield Jr., you need to hear about another man. You have to go back to 1972, when a guy named Tommy Shaw went to prison for robbing a convenience store called the Caper House. Shaw ended up on a prison work crew, and on a summer day in July, he decided to steal a young college student's car. He drove off, his arm out the window, his hand waving at his fellow inmates as he escaped from prison in a Buick Skylark. His joyriding freedom lasted all of one day before cops picked him up. That one day of freedom added three more years to his original sentence. Two years later, Shaw was still in prison when he and a couple of other inmates convinced a new prison guard to drive them down to Charleston as they sipped on a pint of vodka and went on the lam. Once again, Shaw's time in the sun was short, and he was back in prison in short order. Five years later, he escaped from another facility, and this time ended up on the run with two other guys. That time, in 1979, the first two police officers who caught up with Shaw and his fellow crooks ended up in the hospital, both with gunshot wounds. Tommy Shaw wasn't exactly Houdini, nor was he anything that resembled a model prisoner. Freedom seemed to be the one thing on his mind. To call Tommy Shaw an escape artist is probably giving too much weight to the words escape and artist. And he wouldn't matter to this story at all if he hadn't ended up in jail in 1975 with Charles Wakefield. At one point they write something about like how somebody came to see you and you called him blood. That's me sitting across from Charles Wakefield, making him answer for accusations that were in the police file. One of those things, Tommy Shaw told cops, someone visited Wakefield in jail. Someone Wakefield called Blood. I don't know if you just called him Blood, like Blood Brother, or you called him Blood uh, as a nickname. Shaw told the police Wakefield had signaled to the visitor to be quiet, and then gave the man instructions to pass on to the Wakefield family to, quote, take care of things. Jim Christopher, thought the visit was suspicious, and believing blood wasn't a casual greeting, but instead a name, went looking for anyone on the street with the nickname Blood. That investigation went nowhere, and Wakefield says the investigation didn't matter because that mystery visitor never existed. Wakefield said during that first week he was in prison, he was 100% alone with no visitors. Nobody came to see me. I was actually trying to connect with my family to uh, get them to help me, but 
that didn't happen. Couldn't even get your family to come see you. Well, you know, uh, I don't think that they wanted nobody to see me. And they were sort of like, you know, you can't use the phone and all of that. And sort of had it shut down. Nothing came of that report, except the not-so-tacit suggestion that Wakefield was trying to engineer some sort of cover-up from inside his cell. Meanwhile, Detectives Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges were looking for anything to back up the accusation that Wakefield murdered the Loopers. You might remember me telling you about Bridges taking Wakefield to the State Law Enforcement Division, also known as SLED, and giving him a lie detector test. The SLED agent who gave the test said Wakefield had, quote, no knowledge whatsoever of the Looper murders. Well, that wasn't the only lie detector test Wakefield took. The other one happened a couple of days earlier, at 8.30 a.m., just hours after the cops arrested Wakefield. It happened with a Greenville private eye named Sonny Sutton. And that man is a story all his own. Sonny Sutton enlisted in the Air Force at the age of 15. He served in the Korean War, worked for the Greenville Police Department, served as the investigator for the local prosecutor, and then, in 1968, opened Sonny Sutton International Investigative Service. You can learn all of these things just by reading his obituary. But the part that stands out in that obit, the part right after telling you he was born in San Antonio and that his mother's name was Sadie Marie, was this. Mr. Sutton was a graduate of the Zahn Polygraph Institute. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, Sonny Sutton's Zahn Polygraph Institute alumni pride was stronger than any you'll find in the SEC, the ACC, or any Southern football school. Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown remembers Sutton, if not for his skills as a polygraph examiner, as a man who gave him work while Brown was getting ready to run for sheriff. Sonny, when I was, took a leave of absence, uh, Sonny kept food on my table. He paid me to uh, check buildings at night that he was that he was supposed to be checking. And of course, he, he, he kept food on my table for three to six months. And when I didn't have a job, and my wife was the only breadwinner at that time. So uh, it was a tough time. And I always felt very grateful to Sonny for, for seeing that need and, and coming forward and, and it's giving me a little part-time job to, so I could buy groceries. Sutton put Wakefield on his polygraph machine, and then sent the results to the Zahn Institute and a man named Ben Melanowski. Melanowski called Christopher eight hours later, and according to Christopher's report, Melanowski said, Wakefield is positively involved. If he's not the trigger man, then he was there when the shooting happened. No question about it. That report, despite what the SLED agent would say a couple of days later, was enough to keep Christopher hot on Wakefield's trail. Maybe he trusted his local guy, more than he trusted the man from the state cops. Regardless, it wouldn't be long before Sutton's name came up again. This is a story that's too long to tell in full right now. But at one point, a local preacher accused Sheriff Cash Williams of plotting to have him killed. Oh, damn, he raised hell. <laughs> one day I was sitting with Leonard Brown and his son, and they told me about the time Cash Williams was locked in a runoff election with Johnny Mac Brown. Williams was trying to clear his name after being accused of the murder conspiracy plot. That was, a, that was about whether or not he, that he conspired to kill uh, Atkins. <laughs> and, he, and that was during 
just before the runoff. That was between the primary and the runoff. He and Johnny Mack were in the runoff, and Cash was trying to clear his name, and uh, it goes to Sonny and gets Sonny to do it. Cash Williams sat for Sonny Sutton's lie detector test, and Sonny Sutton said Cash was clean. Johnny Mack Brown, despite having an affection for Sutton, had this to say about the polygraph results on Cash Williams. You know, I remember when he polygraphed Cash Williams, telling the truth, I did baloney, you know. I don't believe that for one minute. Regardless, Sonny Sutton defended his Wakefield polygraph results until he died in 2004. When I reported on the Wakefield story in the early 2000s, Sutton called me up out of the blue one day and railed against Wakefield. Sutton told me he still had Wakefield's polygraph charts and that when he polygraphed Wakefield, Wakefield, quote, painted the room with lies. Sutton told me over his decades as a polygraph expert and hundreds of cases, he had made one error. He also told me he and Frank Looper didn't get along because Looper thought Sutton, who was a private investigator, shouldn't be doing polygraphs for law enforcement officers. In 1982, Jim Christopher was no longer with the Greenville Police Department. He had opened up Piedmont Security and Investigations. In his newspaper ad, Christopher touted his experience. Among his qualifications, number one in his class at the Zahn Polygraph Institute. Today, knowing what we do about polygraphs and their overall lack of reliability, the story I just told you seems almost quaint. The rest of this story isn't quaint at all. For Charles Wakefield, it's shameful. For Wakefield's advocates, it's, at best, confusing. For the detectives on Wakefield's trail, it was damning. The story goes back to that escape enthusiast, Tommy Shaw. He tried to give me some pills, but I wouldn't take them, and I took like and flushed them. Wakefield still doesn't remember much about Tommy Shaw or the short time he spent with him in the Greenville City Jail in February of 1975. Wakefield has a vague memory that Shaw said his wife or girlfriend was coming to visit and that Shaw tried to get him to take some pills. In 1975, Wakefield didn't know about Shaw's South Carolina Prison Houdini Act. Wakefield was only locked up for a few days with Shaw. After that, police had to let Wakefield go because other than that fight with Furman Wakefield, police had nothing to charge Wakefield with. But before Wakefield left the jail, he says Shaw asked him for something. He wanted me to get a gun. And back then, if you wanted a gun, nice, clean gun, new gun, just go to Luther's pawn shop. They had guys around, winos, people on drugs and stuff. Give me a few dollars. You can get anything you want. A couple of weeks after going free, a few days after police paid him $22 to take a truth serum test, Wakefield says he paid a wino to go into a pawn shop and buy him a gun. Charles Wakefield remembers the gun being a 22 caliber revolver, but it wasn't a 22. It was a 32, just like the gun that killed the loopers. And Wakefield, he says he modified the gun so it wouldn't fire and carried that gun right into jail. 
struck the firing pin out of it, and, and I had it on me that day when I went down there. I don't know whether or not I was actually taking it to him, but I had it, and I had the firing pin out. It didn't have a firing pin, and it didn't have bullets in, and it was a brand new gun. And then they came up to the bars, and that's when they arrested me. Did he offer you like why? Did he offer you anything to do it, or like why? Why would you? Why would I even go yeah. back down there? Wakefield says Tommy Shaw had promised him $400 if Wakefield could bring him a gun. That was the part I couldn't wrap my brain around. Wakefield was only a couple of weeks out of jail, barely removed from sitting in the cell and wondering if he'd ever get out. And he walked with a gun into jail. And all the time you were thinking about it, did you ever like just, were you able to admit to yourself that you were doing it for a piece of money? And it's like, you, I mean, like, I think that's the one thing that people just won't get. Uh, and I'm not saying that they won't get it because they don't want to get it. But it's like a situation where, like, why in the hell would he do that? Why, when he was already, you know, he just got out of jail, why would he do it? Uh, I mean, was it? Why would he even go down there? Because, I mean, you didn't, I mean, you didn't have any allegiance to Tommy Shaw in any other way. I mean, no, I didn't know him. I didn't know nothing about him. Yeah, but that, and that's the thing that gets me. It's like, it's like, it's not like you wanted this dude to be able to bust out of prison or jail for anything. And you didn't, you didn't. Not with a, not with a gun, with no firing pin and no bullets. Yeah. He can't bust out of that with that. It made no sense. It made no sense then. And it makes no sense now. Yeah, why, why did you go to the jail, let alone with a gun on him? Was the money a big motivating factor? I'm thinking that. When I was interviewing Wakefield about this, there was a long pause during which Wakefield seemed to go backward in time looking at what he did as a 21-year-old through the eyes of a 65-year-old. The money, the money was a motiv motivating factor. The money. He offered me money. He offered me money, yeah. 400 bucks to carry a 32 caliber revolver into the city jail, just days after being let loose. As a guy who spent a couple of decades looking at all the things Wakefield didn't do wrong, the cloud of a $400 felony cast ugly shadow over everything. Do you understand that people will look at you and say, why did he do that? Well, not only why did he do it, but that man's a criminal. It doesn't matter that you didn't have a record before or you didn't have one after it. That man took a gun to somebody who's in jail. That man's a criminal, so I don't give a damn about him. Does that, does that occur to you? You might hear the edge in my voice there. There's a part of me that remembers reading through the police file, shocked at each page, amazed at the extraordinary lengths police went to to build their case against Wakefield, disgusted by the verifiable lies people told on Wakefield, and then getting slapped in the face by the report, the true report, that Charles Wakefield Jr. carried a revolver into the Greenville jail on purpose. Well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be completely honest with you. Not knowing what I know now, when I read through that file the first time and I saw that, I'm like, look at this guy. He's full of shit. You know, he's been telling me all this stuff and then he says all this stuff, but look at it. Like, I mean, look what he did. Yeah. And that was me. That was, right. that was me. The point was this. For 44 years, Wakefield has maintained his innocence in the Looper murders. He has advocates all over South Carolina, all over the United States, who believe 100% in his innocence. But even if he is 100% innocent of the Looper murders, he is not 100% innocent. He committed a crime, a serious crime. And for some folks... People who don't know about the rest of Wakefield's life, or people who haven't bothered to look under the surface of the murder conviction that put him on death row, it's fairly easy to say 
Charles Wakefield is a convicted criminal. Why should I listen to what he has to say? I explained to anybody else whether that incident represented you and who you are or represented something else about you. What about that moment should people know? I had this one moment of insanity. It was crazy. And when I think about it, I say that was insanity. That didn't make no sense. I sat around and I thought about that for a lot of years. You know, you spend you spend a lot of years trying to to do good things, trying to do things better than that. That's that that's what happened to me. Because that was that was a moment that that almost cost me my life. The cause and effect. Wakefield could see it. Yeah. Every one of his advocates can point to some injustice, lie, or ruling and cast blame on somebody else. His advocates can point to the cops, the criminals, the judges, the lawyers. And Wakefield's advocates can say those other people were the cause of Wakefield's four decades of suffering. No matter how right they are or how long the list of causes is, Wakefield knows he is responsible for one of those causes. At the bare minimum, he gave people proof that for at least 30 seconds inside the Greenville jail on February 22nd, 1975, he was a criminal. Wakefield has his own list, not written down, but scrawled somewhere on his heart. The list of regrets, some forced on him, some self-inflicted. Losing his family, missing the funerals, never getting to say goodbye. On that list, at the very top, the day he, or some insane part of his brain, decided to commit a crime. That's the one, that's the one, you know, I mean, you know, if you look back over your life, you know, you kind of sort of hope that things would be different with relationships and stuff like that. But, you know, you just don't have a lot of times when you look back over your life and you say, well, you know what, that mistake almost cost me my life. Wakefield has ample reason to believe that. In May of 1975, he pleaded guilty to attempting to aid in Tommy Shaw's alleged escape attempt. A judge sentenced Wakefield to 18 months in prison. He served five of those months behind bars, and then police called Wakefield. A murderer. 25 years would pass before Wakefield learned more about Tommy Shaw. Eric Gottlieb told Wakefield he learned Shaw was a known jailhouse snitch, an allegation backed up by one line in the police file the one I've studied for so long. On February 2nd, Jim Christopher wrote something in his report. His exact words were, quote, had Charles Wakefield in a cell with Tommy Shaw. Christopher wrote in his official report, he had Wakefield in a cell with Shaw. Over time, Wakefield, his attorney, and his advocates came to believe Christopher told Shaw to convince Wakefield to bring him a gun hoping Wakefield would bring him the Looper murder weapon, confirming Christopher's suspicion that Wakefield was the Looper's killer. In short, if Wakefield's advocates are right, Christopher wasn't just hoping Wakefield would bring a gun 
to Tommy Shaw. Instead, Christopher hoped Wakefield would bring D-Gun. I didn't bring him D-Gun. And that may have, that may have made him pursue me as vigorously as he did because he didn't get D-Gun. He got A-Gun. I guess that's the difference between A and D. Christopher and his fellow detectives did everything they could to tie together that 32 Wakefield gave to Shaw and the Looper murders, but they couldn't. When they finally traced the gun back, they discovered a man named John Williams bought that gun at a pawn shop two days before Wakefield walked it into the jail. It wasn't the gun. It was a gun. But it was enough to be the biggest mistake of Charles Wakefield's life. Even though I made that mistake, I don't think that me making that mistake and doing what I did justified Christopher and Bridges and Billy sending me to death row. Even though I, I, I did make a mistake, I made a horrible mistake. Did I deserve to go to, to death row because I was stupid? I mean, did I deserve that? I don't think I deserve to go to death row. Whatever Wakefield deserved or didn't deserve, what he got was a death sentence. In 1978, the Supreme Court overturned several South Carolina death sentences. Wakefield's was one of them. So Wakefield didn't die. Instead, he spent his time trying to figure out how not to be like that angry child with the reputation for taking people's things falsely accused by his aunt of stealing her money. A lot of people didn't want me to get out of prison. While I was there, I spent a lot of time educating myself. You know, I spent a lot of time in meditation and getting saved. That was part of my life, and that was an episode in my life. Maybe one day I'll be able to get past and beyond that. That's just like this, this moment here. This is like a reoccurring nightmare. Wakefield talked about that nightmare, how it haunted him then, and how it haunted him the day I needed to talk to him about the crime I knew he committed. Wakefield said he had done everything he could to forgive himself for it. Instead, Wakefield said he managed to forgive Christopher and Bridges first, and that he couldn't forget what he had done to himself. I couldn't stop myself from saying what I felt. I mean, you shouldn't forget about it, because it's like, it, it feels like, it's like you know you made that one mistake. I maybe, made a bad mistake. Maybe that's one. Maybe maybe that's the thing you realize. I can't. I can't even. I can't edge up on a mistake anymore. It's like that. That's the mistake that almost cost you your life. The jury that convicted Charles Wakefield never heard about his conviction for the Tommy Shaw case. It wasn't relevant to the Looper murders. They did hear something else from Wakefield's jail time that sounded damning. An allegation that Wakefield hatched a plot to get the reward money in the Looper case. An allegation Wakefield flatly denied and said was a lie told by a jailhouse snitch. I will tell you more about that later. For now, all I can do is tell you the things I know to be true. And among those things is the fact that Charles Wakefield did commit a crime. He admitted it. He went to prison for it. Whether that speaks to his character, whether it defines him, that isn't for me to decide. I'm just telling you what I know.
When telling a story about a man's character, a story with so many characters, the amount of available information plays a role in just how well-defined those characters and their character are. Because I knew very little about him, Tommy Shaw is rather one-dimensional in this saga, a slippery convict of allegedly dubious morality. I know a lot more about Bub Skelton, the good and the bad. For all the hell people said he raised, and for all the darkness people said surrounded him, today, he still has respected people like attorney Frank Epps Jr. and preacher Sammy K. Jr. to make him seem more human, a father, a Christian. But still, just a man of two dimensions we may never fully know. Charles Wakefield, however, is a man whose entire life has been told time and time again, put on trial, convicted, left to rot. There is so much to know about him that trying to make sense of Charles Wakefield's character is something like looking through a kaleidoscope from both ends, one end dark and blurry, the other end beautiful angles like stained glass in a church. But neither end shows us just exactly who he is. They show us a Charles Wakefield, but not exactly the Charles Wakefield. It's a kaleidoscope of refractions and distractions, illusions or outright lies that portray Wakefield as exclusively a villain or exclusively a victim when neither is true, no matter how much one might want to believe what they see. It's easy to find the truth when you're willing to believe no one is lying to you. It's much harder when you know someone is lying, but you aren't sure who. Charles Wakefield is spending his days now hoping there are people who care less about looking in one end of the kaleidoscope or the other, and instead care enough about him, the loopers, law and order, or justice, to break the kaleidoscope in two, to see what's really on the inside. If there's a lesson in any of Charles Wakefield's story, it's that no matter how good you are, one day, one minute, one breath of a mistake can change the way people look at you for the rest of your life. That was a lesson. You go through life, you do have to be mindful of everything that you say and everything that you do and every place that you go because it can just be that one moment where you make that little slip or you make that little bobble or you just make that little mistake or you in the wrong place. After that, then I spent a whole lifetime trying to get back. Thanks to everybody for listening this week. I'm going to be putting a lot more information about some accusations against Wakefield on our website. That's murderetcetrapodcast.com. Murderetcpodcast.com. I'll be putting a lot more on the private Facebook page for Amateurs Etc., where some listeners pay a little bit of money for access to extra material. You can learn more about Amateurs Etc. on the website, too. And if you're listening to this podcast just as it comes out, I'm going to be doing a Facebook Live question and answer session on the night of Sunday, June 30th, where I'll do my best to answer your questions about this episode and others. If you'd like to join in, 
It's free to all members of Amateurs Etc. Until then, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Murder Etc. Cetera.